You're listening to a message from Stonegate Church in Midlothian, Texas. For more information about Stonegate and additional audio resources, visit Stonegate-Church.com. All right. This is, this is the party group right here. You've got a Bible, Luke 22. Um, that's where we're going to be. A little light in the 9 a.m., a little heavy in the 11. We'll just write your name down so we know who the partiers are after so we can take notes here. Um, Luke chapter 22 is where we're going to be. My name is Dan Hutchins, and I'm typically not the person that you would see on a Sunday morning, and um, you typically see Rodney on Sunday. Um, And while you're turning, um, I'll just tell you, if you've ever been in church world before, you know you can kind of anticipate what your lower attendance Sundays are going to be. And I just, you know, I'm typically the guy that preaches on the lower attendance Sunday mornings. And so, um, you know, we, Rodney makes the schedule well out in advance and um, we don't like negotiate about it. We don't bid on any Sundays. He just kind of says, here it is. So if you're visiting, that means I'm on for like Labor Day weekend, think weekends like that. And so um, like Casey got to preach in November, which is a really good month. Here I am, January 1st. It's just how it is. I have been relentlessly giving him a hard time about it, and he's probably just like, God, I just want it to be over. I just want it to be over. And so um, I am excited, though. I, I really am excited. And so um, before we begin, though, I wanted to do this. I want to go ahead and pray again because we're going to be in a passage that is graphic and emotional and um, really a profound passage in, in Luke about Jesus. And so why don't you go ahead and bow with me, and we'll, we'll, we'll start this way. Father, I I can't describe what is not possible to describe. I can't describe what is incomprehensible. And we're in a passage where there are things that are too much for a human mind to wrap their minds around. And so I I just want to humble myself before you and, and ourselves before you. And just pray that your Holy Spirit be really active in the room. Because words will fall drastically short this morning. Drastically short. So would you just help us this morning to know you and to think well and to, and to understand as best we can the gospel of Jesus Christ and specifically this passage that is just wrought with emotion and, and just all kinds of crazy stuff. And so help us. It's in your son's name we pray. Amen. <coughs> The gospel is a story. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John record the gospel story. And it's about the story of Jesus' life, and it's the story of his death, and it's the story of his resurrection and his ascension, and it's, it's just a story. The gospel is a story, and, um, it's, and what happens in the Bible is that the rest of the New Testament, we get what's called the epistles. And the writers of the epistles, guys like Paul and Peter is the book that we're in right now, um, and they're going to try to take the gospel story and the life of believers, and they're going to try to help the believer see that the gospel story and the life of the believer, your life, are not mutually separate sort of entities that stand not in relation to one another. But the burden of a lot of the epistles is to say, this is the story of Jesus, and this is your life, and here's how they merge together. That it's not just a story that happened 2,000 years ago that is emotional and that is inspiring. It's, the gospel's a lot more than that. 
And it's not like, like if I were to get up here and tell you a really cool story from my past that's inspirational and emotional or whatever, it's, it would be different because you're not actually a part of my past and my story. But the gospel is more than that. It's you're actually a partaker of the gospel story. You're actually a part of, you're there in some aspects in the gospel story itself. And that's one of the greatest burdens of, of the epistles and the writers of the epistles is to take the gospel story and the life of the believer and help the believer see where they are in the gospel story and why that matters for their life today. And so what I want to do is I want to look at Luke 22, a story about Jesus, an emotional story that is really kind of inspirational and cool. But I want to take, after, after we look at Luke 22, to take a trip to Romans chapter 6. And I want Romans chapter 6 to help us see where we are in the Luke 22 story. And so that's what we're going to try to do. We're going to take a gospel story and then an epistle and help, help us see where we are in the gospel and where we are specifically in this story. In the Roman culture, the worst form of punishment that was reserved for the most despicable of people, the people that betrayed the Roman government, or just the most violent offenders, murderers, the most excruciating form of death was crucifixion. In fact, we get our word excruciating. It literally means from the cross. And the goal for the Roman government in the crucifixion was to maximize the victim's pain for as long as possible without that victim dying. So that was the goal of the crucifixion. How can we maximize this person's pain without this person actually dying? And so what would take place in a crucifixion is the victim would start off with a series of torture and a series of floggings and beatings. And it would happen for five or six hours, maybe. And um, after that happened, it was it was not unlikely for for a person to be unrecognizable after he is beaten and tortured. Severe blood loss. Um, You can't typically you wouldn't be able to recognize the victim. This is pre cruc This is pre the cross. And so the person would be so beat up and so out of, out of breath and out of shape and, and so messed up, you couldn't be able to recognize them. And so then the person would go from that scene and they would take the person to the cross. And when a person was hung on a cross in the Roman culture, it wasn't like on a, on a secretive sort of valley. It was typically in a really public setting. And so a person would be put normally by like a road where everyone travels on. Um, and so that way it was like Rome's reminder to, to their people, this is what happens if you betray the Roman government. That, that's what happens. And so they would set it intentionally, the crucifixion, people on the cross, so that people would be able to see, other people would be able to see the victims. And, um, and the other thing that would happen, and we know this, is that the victim would, be, uh, would have nails driven into his hands and nails driven into his feet. And um, the, one of the, the worst forms of suffering that would happen for the victim is something that's called asphyxiation, which is where a, you know, for you to survive on the cross after immense amounts of blood loss with nails in your hands and feet, you, the victim would have to, have to gather up enough strength to lift himself up and breathe in, or he would just suffocate. So he would go through this cycle of having to come up and get a breath and then go back down. And how we would have to leverage his body weight was against the nails driven into his hands and feet. So he'd have to leverage himself up. So that was, that was the crucifixion. How can we maximize a person's suffering for as long as possible? And depending on the health of the person, sometimes they would last days on the cross. Sometimes. And so the question is, in Roman culture, that was an unbelievably feared form of torture. And so the cross itself 
was a really feared symbol. I mean, no one wore cross necklaces in the Roman culture. Nobody did. But today, there are cross walls in some of your houses. There are crosses on your necks. And there are cro- we celebrate and we worship the cross. And this passage is going to give us a very clear answer as to why it is that we worship Jesus for dying on the cross and why we specifically celebrate the cross and what actually took place on the cross that would cause believers to take what was so feared in the Roman culture and now wear it on their neck as a symbol. And so that's, that's one of the questions that we want to look at is what actually happened on that day on the cross? And we see a really clear answer of that. And so I want to start off and, and make uh, in Luke chapter 22, verse 39. And he came out and went, as was his custom, to the Mount of Olives, and his disciples followed him. Jesus has been to the Mount of Olives in the Garden of Gethsemane many times, according to this passage. He probably has memories of just really fun times hanging out with the disciples, just kind of chilling or whatever, and, and just kind of hanging out. The Mount of Olives, the Garden of Gethsemane. And um, he, he probably has memories of him praying at the Mount of Olives and him spending a lot of time in communion with the Father. So he probably has a memory, a pool of knowledge that is, is filled with good memories of the Mount of Olives. But we get to this particular evening, and on this particular evening, there is nothing fun and exciting about the atmosphere. In fact, Jesus is unbelievably what Mark, the Gospel of Mark will describe as distraught, distressed, and troubled. Jesus is in agony right now. And so this is the setting. He brings his disciples to the Garden of Gethsemane, and he's just absolutely in agony. He's in complete anguish. And it's, it's like, you know, he'd been prophesying all throughout his ministry to his disciples, I'm, I'm going to eventually have to die. Or he would kind of allude to it. He would say something like, you know, the temple's going to die and in three days it's going to be risen. And all the Pharisees were like, there's no way you could rebuild the temple in three days. It's like all this cool stuff and it's a building and Jesus is like, I'm the temple. And, and so he just alludes all over the place in his ministry that he's going to have to die. And it's like Jesus walks into the Garden of Gethsemane and it, that, it actually is about to happen. I mean, he's just moments away from a death and from a really, really difficult season. And as a result of that, subsequently just begins to break down in complete agony. So that's, and this is a really, this is a really comforting Jesus for me. I mean, this, he, he suffers. He goes through trials. He's in agony here. So we'll see some of this. This is, this is a very human Jesus in this passage. Very human Jesus. And so I want to make three observations about Jesus in this passage. And so let's look at the first one, verse 40. And when he came to the place, he said to his disciples, in immense agony and torment to the disciples, pray that you may not enter into temptation. Just previously, Jesus had just instituted the Lord's Supper for the first time with his disciples. He just had his disciples around the table And he took bread and he broke the bread and he passed it out to the disciples. And he likened his bread to his, to the broken bread, to his broken body. And then he, he poured wine and drink and gave it to his disciples. And he likened the wine to his blood that's going to be spilt out for them. And you have to imagine what the disciples, I mean, they've never seen something like the Lord's Supper. So they're probably like super confused about what's going on. And only Jesus really understands what's going on in this passage. 
And so Jesus does all this, and, and they do the Lord's Supper, the institution, and I just, the disciples are probably like, what is going on right now? And, and so then, um, it's probably for the disciples, just kind of a typical evening, you know? I mean, they're just, they just ate some, not a meal that they would normally eat, but they're still kind of hanging out, and, and then there's a debate that breaks out. This is a really classic. I mean, so like a group of guys get together, and they're debating about who is greater. And that is a classic guy thing right there, you know? And so the disciples erupt in this sort of debate, like, I'm the best, and I'm the best, and I'm going to be the greatest. No, I'm going to be the greatest. And you have to imagine, I mean, it's kind of funny. Jesus is about to go through immense torture, and he's like, oh, my gosh, they're in a debate about who's the greatest. And so um, I just think that's kind of funny. And so, uh, but the disciples get into this debate, and Jesus resolves the conflict, and then he does something really interesting. He walks up to Peter, and I just kind of imagine the scene where they're kind of lighthearted, and everything's kind of you know, just kind of fun and chill. And Jesus walks up to Peter and says, Peter, I need to tell you something really, really, really important. Satan himself is about to tempt you. Not, not some JV demon. Satan himself is going to tempt you. And I'm really, really concerned for you. So much so that I'm praying for you. Peter, I just want you to know that I'm so concerned about you and about the next few hours of your life that I'm praying for you. And in fact, it even says that, Jesus says, Simon, Simon, behold, Satan demanded to have you that he might sift you like wheat. He wants to destroy you. But I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail. And when you have turned again to strengthen your brothers. So Jesus, in the middle of his own personal agony and torture and just inner agony, looks at Peter and says, I really care a lot about you and the disciples. And what's about to happen, your only chance of obedience and not denying me and turning from me is to commune with the Father. My only, the only chance you, Simon, Peter, have and the rest of the disciples have at surviving the sort of onslaught of trials and temptations that are about to happen to you is for you to understand your dependence upon, your need for God, for you to humble yourself before God and to then, and to then commune with God. And this is a theme that we're going to see in this passage. And so Jesus, and so fat, that was the previous scene. So fast forward to this scene and you've got the present scene, Jesus coming into the garden and it's like his own personal agony, the weight of what's about to happen to him comes upon him and he begins to break down. And even in the midst of deep personal agony, he looks at his disciples and says, I care about you. Pray that you don't enter into temptation. Number one, Jesus demonstrates compassion. This is a really profound demonstration of compassion for other people. That even in the midst of Jesus' own personal trials in life, that he's about to have to endure one of the single most difficult trials that any human being will ever have to, to encounter. Even in that moment, he looks upward to God and outward at others and has deep care and concern and compassion for his disciples. This is a very clear, in your life and in my life, one of the clearest displays of the gospel that we can offer to a world, to this world, is when we ourselves encounter these sorts of trials. And in the midst of our own personal seasons of trials and temptations, that we can look upward to God in dependence and outward towards others in compassion. And I'm so, I am personally convicted by this. Because it is, I mean, it's so easy for me to, to walk and sort of, you know, if I encounter some kind of trial or whatever, or things don't go my way or whatever, that, that I turn rapidly inward focused. Why didn't this come my way? And why, this, why, is this, why is life so hard on me? 
And it's so hard for me to see God and so definitely so hard for me to see others at times. But this is Jesus demonstrating in, a, in his own personal agony, deep compassion for other people. It's one of the greatest displays of the gospel that we can offer other people. And it's, it's, I mean, this is Jesus demonstrating, God, you're, you're definitely in control, even though it's terrible right now. God, you're definitely in control. You're sovereign and you're good. And if, if I am in Christ and if I am a child, I know that everything that you bring me through and bring me up against is ultimately for my best. It's in my best interest and for my good. And it's for your glory in some weird way. So God, I know that. And so that's what empowers Jesus to say, I care about other people. I'm compassionate. I care about the spiritual well-being of the 12 disciples. A little before my, I think it was a little bit before I was a junior hire, um, wait, there was a season in my life for a while in my childhood where all of my great-grandparents were alive, which was really cool. Um, and so on this particular occasion, we had one, grandparent, one great-grandmother of mine named Ninny that we called Ninny. And Ninny was, if you ask anyone of my, I mean, she was like a, she was a spiritual rock in our family. Just a really, I mean, we just loved Ninny. And Ninny had been battling cancer for a long time. And we got a call and it said something like, we're not sure how long Ninny's going to make it. And so we, we went up to Arkansas and visited Ninny. And um, I just have remnants of, of memories. I was talking to my mom about this this week. And I just have remnants of memories of, of me walking into her house. And I have a twin brother, me and my brother, being there, and Ninny being sick with cancer, with not a long, long time left. And for just maybe an hour or two, her just talking all about Doug and I. I mean, she just wants to know all about our sports and all about our activities and our lives and our school and just kind of talking all about our family and what's going on. And I don't remember anything about her being sick or her cancer or her not feeling well and that is just such a picture of really deep compassion for people, like really deep care for people. I mean, Nanny demonstrated what Jesus is really demonstrating in her personal battle against cancer, that even in her, her weakness and her disease that she looks out at others and has really deep, genuine care for people. First point, Jesus demonstrates compassion. Let's keep going. Verse 41. And he withdrew from them about a stone's throw away, and he knelt down and he prayed. In this culture, the rabbi at a typical temple in, in first century Rome culture would typically not kneel down to pray. In fact, it was very uncommon. Um, it was very common for the rabbi to stand up and pray. It was kind of like his way of saying in the first century, I'm kind of the spiritual authority of this place. And so I get to kind of stand up and, and pray. And, and this is Jesus kneeling down to pray. And so this is a very, in this culture, would be very, a rare thing for a rabbi to kneel down to pray. But kneeling um, is pretty much a cross-cultural, you know, universal sign for complete surrender and commitment. So this is Jesus, number two, demonstrating commitment to God. Surrender to God. That even in the midst of really deep trials and agony, Jesus looks outward at care and compassion and concern for his disciples. And then he kneels down, falls to the ground, and looks up. And it's his way of saying, God, this is going to be difficult, this is going to be hard, but if this is your will, I surrender myself to your will. Jesus demonstrating really deep, profound commitments. And so I want to give us three, I want to give kind of help us see the degree to which Jesus was committed by describing exactly what was causing his anguish. 
So this is what I want to do. I want to I help us see the degree to which Jesus was committed by describing exactly what was going on that was creating this sort of anguish and agony. And there's three things. The first thing is Jesus was enduring spiritual anguish. Let's keep reading. Verse 42. Father, if you are willing, remove this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. There's this cup imagery where Jesus, he, it's, like he's a, it's like he sees something coming in his near future that is just so unbelievably difficult and hard to bear that he kneels down to the ground and even says, Father, if it's possible for you to remove this cup from me, please do that. But nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. And, while, and so the question is, what is in this cup that Jesus is talking about? What is, what is he actually struggling with here so deeply? What is actually creating this spiritual anguish? And while the physical torture is definitely something that would create nervousness inside of Jesus, that's not primarily what is causing the agony in Jesus. The physical torture is not primarily what he's so anxious about. Jesus is anxious about the spiritual and relational separation that he's going to have to experience with God the Father. Now this is where we, our minds, just, we just, there's not a modern day equivalent of this. See, Jesus and God love each other. They've got an, un, an unbelievably intimate love for one another. And so Jesus and God and the Holy Spirit, the Trinity, were existing in eternity's past before the world ever existed in a perfect, loving relationship with each other that's never once defiled by sin. And Jesus and God's plan in eternity's past, according to Ephesians 1, is that this day would have to come. Jesus and God had this plan that for other people to be saved, you, Jesus, have to go through this crucifixion on this day. That has to happen for other people to be saved. And so in eternity's past, they had this loving, perfect relationship that's developed, that's evolved, that's, that's, perp- that's undefiled by sin. So you can't even imagine the degree to which the Father loves Jesus and the degree to which Jesus loves the Father. We don't have a modern day equivalent of that. Like, as I was getting ready for today, you know, I listened to several sermons about, you know, this passage. And it's a lot of preachers, they'll say, all right, dads, can you imagine sacrificing your own son? And a lot of them are like, no. And that's exactly what God the Father was like. That's not true. Because we have, we have relationships that are defiled by sin. It was much more difficult for God the Father to sacrifice his son God the Son, and for Jesus to experience relational separation from God the Father. Not to demean our, you know, example of that, but we want to heighten God's, because they have no sin has ever affected their relationship, so they're in a a deep relationship that's not defiled by sin. And so that way, you know, I mean, we've got to be careful here. I don't want to go off on a tangent, but I will. Like Romans 5.8, you know, that, that God shows his own love for us, that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. God shows his own love for us. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. I mean, if you're not careful, you'll just read that without giving really deep thought to what that actually means. I mean, you can't, we can't read, sing songs like the love of God flippantly. Because when we talk about the love of God for Jesus and the love of God for us, it's a big deal. 
When we read verses like God shows us his own love for us, that while we were still weak and sinful, he took his son, Jesus, that was perfect in a great relationship with the father, perfect relationship with the father and slaughtered his son. And the son, Jesus, willingly did that. Willingly did that. Received the wrath of God, his father, whom he loved, so that we could be sons and daughters of God. So Jesus is undergoing spiritual anguish. Let me give you, I want to make sure this is really clear. And so I've got this illustration here with some cups. Um, let me get this set up here. So I've got people, this is, this is essentially what the cup that Jesus is so, he's got something coming for him in the future that is so, he's so in agony over the, what is going on? And so here, here's what happens. I'm going to use, I'll start off with me as an example. So every time I, this is my cup. This is figuratively speaking, God's wrath. And so every time I sin, I am accumulating for myself the commensurate or proportionate or right amount of God's wrath to pay for that sin, for that sin against God. And so as I live as a sinner, because I am, I continue to accumulate God's wrath. And it's, you know, it's the illustration falls short. There's holes in it. You know, it's like if you sin one time, according to James, if you break the law one time, God's law, you break in, you're guilty of the entire law, which is in itself enough to put you in hell for an eternity. But just follow the illustration, follow the illustration here. So this is my cup. We all have cups that we're, we're filling. And so this is, this is Casey. Gets to preach in November. It's a lot of wrath. Maybe just my wrath, though. Maybe not God's wrath. So Casey, as Casey sins, the same sort of scenario. We've got Kevin. Kevin picks on me a lot. So we're going to give Kevin a lot of wrath. Because he's bigger than I am. I don't care. A bit more wrath. I didn't do Rodney because I'd already given him just so much about, I just feel bad for him. I don't know. And I don't want to lose my job. Travis here. <laughs> and you can just add your cup. You know, I, there's, not a, there's, not a, there's not a shortage of sinners in this room to bring cups up onto the table, you know. But what happens is we, as we sin, we just accumulate God's wrath. And what it means to be a believer is that when I, when I was nine, looked at Jesus and said, I know I'm a sinner. And I know that you paid for my sin on the cross. That means in that moment, the cup of God's wrath that I had been accumulating, that I even continued to accumulate, got transferred into Jesus's cup. So this is Jesus's cup. And Travis, when he became a believer, gets transferred into Jesus's cup. Kevin, when he becomes a believer, his wrath gets transferred to Jesus's cup. Casey, when he becomes a believer, transferred to Jesus' cup. And so what we have here is a cup of God's wrath that Jesus is looking at. That's much different than this. He's looking at a cup where all the believer's wrath for all time, everyone that's ever going to be saved for all time, all the wrath that's lifted from them and is put into a massive cup. 
so Jesus is looking at a cup that is massively full of God's wrath. So that's why Jesus falls to his face in agony is because he knows he's about to experience a certain kind of hell that we would all have to experience. And he's going to take the full effect of that in just a day, just a moment in time. That's why this is so emotional for Jesus. And then there's some of you, maybe you're in here. This is the unsaved person. And that's what it looks like right now, if you're not a believer. And there's, there's really bad news and there's really great news. Like the bad news is if God were to, to take your life today, you would spend an eternity in hell paying your, this wrath back in full. And it would require an eternity and separation from God. But today, is still, there's still, the offer is still on the table for you to say with all of us and with so many of us, I need help. I am a sinner. I have cursed your name. I cannot on my own earn or merit my own righteousness. So I need a Savior and I need Jesus to take upon himself my wrath. And what Jesus says is that if that registers with you, that he will actually do that. That the wrath that you've earned will actually have been applied to Jesus in his cup. So that you can become a believer. So that you can walk with God and know God. This is the imagery that we see in this passage about the cup. So we see Jesus in spiritual anguish. Deep spiritual anguish. But then we see him in mental anguish. Let's keep reading. Verse 43. And there appeared to him an angel from heaven. Strengthening him. This is really interesting. I mean God looks down. Loves Jesus. Sees his son in absolute agony. And calls an angel. Hey, angel, come over here. Maybe not like that. And he says, angel, this is your job. This is your mission. Go down to the Garden of Gethsemane and comfort my son. That's your one mission. That's the degree to which Jesus is struggling here. I mean, he's struggling so much that the father is literally says to an angel, your one job on earth is to go and comfort my son. But even in the midst of comfort, this is what it says. And being in agony, he prayed even more earnestly. And his sweat became like great drops of blood falling to the ground. This is actually a medical condition. It's where like in all of our faces, right around our sweat glands, we have a net-like structure of blood vessels. And when someone goes, un- goes experience really deep amounts of stress and anxiety, that causes a, causes a physical rupturing of those blood vessels. And those blood, those, or those blood vessels around the sweat glands and blood begins dripping out of the sweat glands. It's a very uncommon medical condition because very few people ever go through that degree of anxiety. But Jesus is here and in, he's in his mind mentally. He, is in su- he sees something coming that's so difficult for him that he falls to the ground, kneels to God in spiritual anguish, and then he thinks about it, and it's like the, they just, the, the blood vessels begin to rupture, and blood becomes pouring out of his sweat glands. So he undergoes mental anguish. 
The last thing is he undergoes social anguish. I mean, this is a, like Jesus was nice to people. He had a lot of friends. He loved his disciples, loved his disciples, spent three years with his disciples. He loved his family. And what Jesus sees here in the next, in the coming moments, he sees all of his friends and his disciples that he's loved so much completely betray and turn their back on him. He's, he knows that Simon Peter, even though, he's, even though he's calling Peter to pray, 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 Satan's coming, Satan, tell the other disciples to pray, pray so that you don't get into it. He knows they're going to fail. He knows that Peter's going to deny him. He knows that Jesus is going to walk on this road. No one's going to, the disciples are not going to stand there on the side of the road with their bodies painted, go Jesus. So that's just not going to happen. No one's going to hold up a sign for Jesus that says, you got it. No one is going to give Jesus a warm, encouragement, friendly smile while he undergoes this. He sees, Jesus sees a lonely road ahead of him where all of his friends and all of his family are nowhere to be found. The disciples are hiding. Peter is denying him. So Jesus is in such social anguish. He sees this and he just looks up and I... I know this is going to be, it's just going to be me on this road. Even God the Father is for a season going to have to turn away from Jesus, God the Son, while he dumps and hurls his wrath on the Son. So for Jesus, this is a very lonely moment. Have you ever been lonely and betrayed before? Isn't it encouraging to know that Jesus himself is intimately acquainted with betrayal and what it means to be alone. Like some of us, this, this, this isn't too uncommon of a scenario, even at Stonegate and amongst church-going folk like us, where you get into a church and, you know, you, I, yeah, I'm in, I go to Stonegate, I'm, I'm here and I go to this church or whatever, but I'm not relationally convo- involved very much. I'm not in a home group and I'm just kind of, I'm on the peripheral kind of edges. And, and the reason is because at my former church, I got involved a lot and I, I built up a lot of relationships and, and everyone just kind of let me down. And I was hurt and I was wounded and I was betrayed. And Jesus understands this. And while I empathize with your situation, if that's you in here, Jesus' solution is not to draw back from relationship, but it's to forgive and befriend. Later in the Gospels, Jesus reconnects with, the, God, with the, the disciples. And there's nothing but forgiveness and friendship that's going on between them. And I've said, you know, we're, we're a church. We're just sinful. Things, we'll just wound each other, like I've said, over and over again. And I'll say always, I apologize when I inevitably create chaos here. I hope I don't, but I know I'm going to. And that's just how this is. And Jesus' response is not to draw back and pull away from, even in the midst of agony and betrayal and, and loneliness. He, he walks in through it, and later he's going to reconnect and he's going to befriend and forgive. That's the character of Jesus. The character of Jesus. And so Jesus undergoes spiritual anguish. He undergoes social, mental anguish, and he undergoes social anguish. And let's just finish up. Um, I forgot to read this to you. This is just a really good way of putting it. What was the source of Jesus' great stress and anguish? Clearly, he was in intense spiritual agony. Being the Son of God, he would have in detail everything that was about to happen to him. 
He knew that he was physically facing one of the most horrible forms of capital punishment there has ever been. His body was human and he would feel everything at least as intensely as we would. Was this the source of his severe stress? It is doubtful. They really, the really great weight upon Jesus was the knowledge that he would soon bear the terrible trauma of taking the guilt of our sins upon him. My sins and yours. He knew that under this weight of sin, the Father would first forsake him, and thus he would endure a form of hell itself for lost sinners. So let me finish out this, this passage, and I, I want to go over to Mark real fast, but let me finish out this one. And he rose from prayer. He came to the disciples and found them sleeping for sorrow. And he said to them, why are you sleeping? Rise up and pray that you may not enter into temptation. So Jesus comes up out of prayer and he sees his disciples sleeping because they're so sorrowful. This is a really interesting point. The only person that can bear the sorrow of the atmosphere in this setting is Jesus Christ. The disciples Jesus says, pray that you may not enter into temptation. And they're so overcome by sorrow and by the atmosphere, it puts them to sleep. What I'm trying to say is what we see in this passage is Jesus the hero. That he really is the only person that could ever experience this sort of atmosphere and not fall apart in the midst of it. The disciples are sleeping because they're so overcome with it. And so I want to turn for our last observation about Jesus to Mark uh, 14. It's the same story. He just kind of says something that's pretty cool. So Mark 14. Verse 41. And Jesus came a third time and said to them, same setting. Are you still sleeping and taking your rest? It is enough. The hour has come. The Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us be going. See, my betrayer is at hand. It's a lot different Jesus than the Jesus we saw at the beginning of the passage. The Jesus at the beginning of the passage was just under this enormous weight. He was in agony. And now Jesus comes up from prayer after spending moments with the Father, communing with the Father, being honest with the Father. And now Jesus has, demonstrates conviction and courage. Third observation, conviction and courage to go through with what God has called him to. And this is, I mean, see if you can piece this together. I mean, this, what we see here is Jesus humbly dependent upon God. God help me. God, I need you. And then we see Jesus communing with God. So we've got a humble dependence upon God that leads Jesus to deep communion with God that culminates in conviction and courage to actually follow God. This is what we see in this passage. Humbly dependent upon the Father, communing with the Father, and then confident, courageous, and and convicted to actually do what God has called him to do. Where there are Christians that are not, that, that do not understand their need for God, are not humbly dependent upon God, that will then lead to prayerless Christians that will culminate in cowardice and fear. And here's the thing. 
We need, I need courage and conviction to follow God regardless of the situation, regardless of whatever season of life I am. It takes courage and conviction and confidence. So where does that come from? Well, for Jesus, it came from a humble dependence upon God and deep communion with God. And out of communion with God comes a confident demeanor, a courageous, convicted, this is God's plan. This is what I need to do, and I'm, I'm okay with it. And while it's not my, it's going to be difficult, this is okay, this is God's will. And he comes out of prayer with just this whole new demeanor. Let me list off some examples. In temptation, you know in 2012, you will be tempted you know that you'll go through seasons of temptation where some are really, really strong. And you need deep conviction and courage to be obedient to God in the midst of heavy temptation. It's unnatural for us to say no to sin. It takes courage, conviction. Where does that come from? I would suggest that it comes from an awareness of one's need for God, utter dependence upon God, And subsequently, deep communion with God. What about evangelism and being on mission? That's a big deal for us here in 2000. Big goal for us. It's hard to to feel a prompting by the Holy Spirit for a non-believer that you may know. And then to live and to to walk in that and to be obedient to that and to to have a conversation like that. That's that's difficult. It takes courage and conviction to do that. Where does that come from? How about heart-level conversations with believers? I mean, you see, you know, it's really easy to talk about the Cowboys tonight. It's really easy. It's a playoff-clinching moment tonight, I hope. It's really hard to say, I I really noticed something in your life, and I'm concerned about you. That's an unnatural conversation. It takes courage and conviction to do things like that. How about repentance in general? I mean, it takes courage and conviction. It's easy to never repent. That's the easy way out. It is cowardly and easy to know your sin and to just never, never repent. It takes courage and conviction. When you've messed things up, to repent to God. God, I have messed things up. And to repent to other people. I have messed this up. That takes a lot of courage, a lot of conviction. I like to be on time sometimes, most of the time. And I, you know, this happened this week, and I, I felt like we were getting ready, and we weren't actually late yet. We haven't even reached the late mark, but I felt like we were going to be late, even though we hadn't quite reached that mark yet. Felt like we were going to be late. And I just, I just got really irritable, like really sinfully messy irritable because of that. So I had to run some errands, so I went out and run some errands, and I was like, gosh, this is what sin is. I do not feel like repenting. I do not feel like saying I'm sorry to God or to Trisha. I don't feel like cleaning up the mess. That's just ex- it's exactly what life is. It takes courage and conviction to get on your knees and go, Father, I have messed this up, and I need your grace. And to the people you've offended, I've messed this up, and I need your forgiveness. It takes courage and conviction to be the spiritual leader in your home. I mean, how many guys, we're all in this together. You know, we walk into our home, guys, and... It's late at night, you know, we've had a long day at work or whatever, we're stressed, and it's like, you know what you should do, you know, you know what God 
really want you to do tonight. You know, you're, you're called to be the spiritual leader in your home, and, and you know that you, know, you, you really want to have a heart-level spiritual conversation with your wife or with your kids, and, and you know that there's things going on that you need to address, and, and, you, you, and you, just, you just don't feel like it. You know, you just, all you want to do is just, God, I just want to do this. Just sit in front of the TV, right? It takes courage and conviction. And I, you know, I, it's hard for all of us, you know. It takes courage and conviction to walk in that sort of obedience, though. And like Jesus, it takes courage and conviction to just face trials in general. I mean, Jesus is going through trial after trial. This is a really deep trialing situation for Jesus. And he's just courageous and committed. And he comes out of it confident and, and convicted that this is what he needs to do. What I love about this passage is you see the honesty of Jesus, don't you mean? Like he doesn't come to the disciples and say, All right, disciples, I am going through a difficult season. And I want to teach you about that. I want, to, I want to teach you a lesson on suffering. If you notice my face, I'm not showing it at all. Because you're not supposed to do that. I'm just teaching you lessons about, about how to suffer without actually showing it. That's not how Jesus does it. You have permission. The Bible gives you permission, and Jesus does too, to be honest with God. And see, like for some of you, you don't commune with God because you feel like you've got to be in this like spiritual condition, this, this heightened spiritual state to, to come to God and to draw near to God. What we see in Jesus is that could not be more opposite. I mean, he is really struggling here. And is really honest with God about exactly how he feels. I mean, you never surprise God with how you feel. I mean, he knows even more than you do how you feel. And so let me, let me close really quickly with just reading Romans. And then I'll, uh, I'll close up by making just a couple of really quick observations. Romans 6 says, verse 1 says this. So we're trying to connect that story and where we are in that story. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? Do you know that not that all of us who have been baptized in Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried therefore with him by baptism into death. In order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. So let me, that whole passage is about this, but let me just cut it short. And I just, I'll, do, I'll, I'll summarize that by this way. When Jesus died on the cross and was crucified and underwent that, that physical process of crucifixion that we talked about earlier. When Jesus was tortured your nature was there with him. Your evil nature was with him. When Jesus was, when he had a crown of thorns shoved on his head, it was your evil nature that was with him. You were there with him, present with him, if you're a believer in here. When Jesus was drugged to the cross and was nailed to the cross, and as he was undergoing asphyxiation, your evil nature was there with him. And as Jesus was mocked and made fun of and spit at and, and ridiculed, your evil nature was there with him. Now, you've got to be careful. You don't use second and third person pronouns. You need to use first person singular pronouns or you lose meaning in it. Like me, I, Dan, I was, my evil nature was there with him. And when Jesus breathed his last breath on the cross and died... My evil nature died with Jesus Christ. 
And here's the thing with death. It's something we all have in common. Like all of us are going to die. When death exists because sin exists. That's what Genesis 3 teaches us. That we all have that in common. Death is the most powerful thing. The most powerful essence in the world. We all, we, no one gets around death. I mean, death doesn't walk up to you and go, I want to take you home, but you're just too athletic right now. I don't know if I can take you. You're too strong or smart or whatever. It's something we all will endure. It's a great conversation starter. You know, when you're trying to find something in common with somebody. It's like, well, we're going to die. So how do you want it to go down? Nope. And so uh, we all have this in common, though. Nobody gets around the power of death. It's on us all except one person. Except one person. Three days later, just as God breathed life into Adam, he breathed life into his son. And Jesus, his eyes come open and he begins to breathe and he walks and he comes alive again. Except this time, your sinful nature stays dead in the ground. And Jesus rises in his perfect, holy, powerful, death-conquering, righteous nature. And here's, the, here's, where we tie, here's where I want to connect the dots always for us. The message that Jesus sent to the world in that moment was, I am now the most powerful thing, person, whatever in the world. Death, even death itself is not more powerful than me. Even I, Jesus... Not even the power of death can hold Jesus in the ground. Just like the song we sang, that the weight of sin does not hold Jesus in the ground. The weight of death does not hold Jesus in the ground. It holds us in the ground. Our evil nature stay in the ground. But Jesus Christ, the perfect hero, comes up out of the ground and demonstrates to the world, I am now the most powerful person, thing, whatever, that the world has ever known. And the great, and the, here's the great, here's where you're involved is now you're given this perfect, righteous, death-conquering nature that Jesus has. The nature's transfer. Jesus gets your evil nature, gets your wrath. You get Jesus' righteous, powerful nature so that now you can demonstrate compassion in the midst of trials. And so that now you can demonstrate commitment to God regardless of the situation. And so that you can now demonstrate conviction and courage to actually follow God. Those things can actually happen to you because the gospel is what the gospel is and your life and the story merge together in this beautiful scene of Jesus dying on the cross for us and giving us our new natures. Let's pray together. With your head bowed and your eyes closed, if you're not careful, you'll hear this and go, I need to start praying more. I need to start, I need to start being committed more. And I need to show more compassion. And this is not a do better, try harder. It's a understand yourself and look at God. It's an understand how actually in need you are of God. And how great of a father God is for us. When that is there, compassion, commitment, conviction, courage, those things just happen. Father, help us. I said that... There are things today that are too much. Words just don't, they just, they just fail. I mean, illustrations fail. Feeble, feeble attempt to describe you. 
to describe the wrath that you poured out on your son, to describe the love that you have for us and the love that you have for Jesus and the hatred that you have for sin and feeble attempts to describe you this morning. And so I pray that you would just be active and present in this room, that you would help us to love you more and to walk with you more and to see you more clearly. So we thank you for the story that stands as such an amazing display of both your wrath and your love. So help us to walk with you and know you. Thank you for listening to this message from Stonegate Church, located in Midlothian, Texas. For service times, additional audio and study resources, as well as information about our church, please visit us at stonegate-church.com.